everyone. Welcome back to another episode of AT Talks. Uh, I'm your host, Tom Barkowski, and we're with Daria. All right, I'm going to mess it up. We have a lady that we do this with, uh, Leah, and I always want to call her Leah so much. But uh, <laughs> welcome. If you wouldn't mind just uh, spending a little bit of time telling the world uh, who you are and how you became uh, the medical provider that you are today. Sure. Um, yeah, so Dr. Daria Oler. I did my undergraduate degree in athletic training at James Madison University. I graduated in 2006. And from there, I went directly to PT school at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. Uh, while I was there, I was working part-time as an AT at NYU in New York City. And then I also did a bunch of random um, per diem gigs with youth sports, high school sports, club sports, a lot of different things. Um, after that, I went to Penn State where I was in an AT PhD program for four years. And my research focused on, it's long, youth sport injury and illness epidemiology at a university sponsored summer sport camp program. So I basically studied all the injuries at Penn State sport camps with the kids who were six to 19 years old, 25 different sports, lots of things going on every summer. Um, and then while I was there, I wasn't entirely sure what my next path would be. At a, uh, you know, some different options between PT and AT, clinical, research, academic. And I also had fallen into teaching dance classes at a studio literally down the street from my office. I've been dancing since I was three. And that sort of snowballed and took off. So when I moved back to New Jersey, um, I was still pursuing dance. I performed in a professional company in New York City. I joined a company in central Pennsylvania. And so during that, I started specializing in treating dancers. I was working at an outpatient clinic in northern New Jersey. Typical outpatient, um, orthopedic things, some neurological, like patients with Parkinson's and MS. Um, I like working with kids a lot, um, especially like under high school. I absolutely love them. I would start seeing dancers. And I didn't anticipate going that route with dance. Um, when I was an undergrad, remember somebody in my program was going to Indiana as a GA specifically to work with their dance program. And it just, it, I didn't think I had enough of a dance background at the time, just not something that interested me. And then as I got into dance more as a dancer, it really interests me as a clinician. Um, so that is one of my specialties now. And um, more recently I have, I started a new job in January where I'm at, it's a different clinic called Proactivity in New Jersey. And we're on site with different um, construction type companies so a couple of days a week, this is like brand new, it's a very weird time to change jobs during a pandemic. Um, but a couple of days a week I'm on site, um, which is really neat to be in an industrial setting. It's obviously very different from dance. And one of the really neat things I like about this job now is everybody's very health focused. Um, we talk about these five different elements in keeping us healthy with fuel, movement, uh, recovery, endure and connect and it like plays into everything we do which is really fascinating and then once whenever we're allowed to return to work again because in new jersey um there's a lot of covid cases right now i'm then also be treating in the clinic that's me in a nutshell uh, now do you do you would you say you're more physical therapist than an athletic trainer by definition by like job contract yes i think especially now actually being on site in this industrial setting it's actually, I was surprised how much of my AT background I'm using, like say in terms of injury triage, where I said, I'm fine. Like I've seen injuries when they happen thousands and thousands of times, literally, like I'm fine with that part of it. Um, just that like quick kind of um, thing, or you just have like a 10, 15 minutes to talk to somebody versus in the clinic, I have a full hour, you know, for an evaluation. Um, we're doing being there 
to actually like analyze someone's movement, you know, things that we do all the time with sports practices and um, on the sidelines and things. So I'm actually using a lot of my AT background, but I'm not like, by definition, I'm not there as an athletic trainer. Okay. So like I'm an athletic trainer, so I understand how athletic training works, but what's the process uh, to get up and running certified license as a physical therapist? That's a good question. So we have a whole, you know, curriculum, just like with athletic training Um, right now. So it's, I think everyone knows you, it's a doctoral degree. The vision, it was supposed to be vision 2020 that everyone was switched over by 2020, but that happened like much sooner, I guess, than anticipated. And then we sit for a licensure exam. It's not like AT where you have the BOC certification and then you separately apply for your license if that's what your state has. Everybody takes the same test. Um, and then you indicate when you take the test what state you will be practicing in, and then you apply, you have licensure for that. Um, all states have licensure. And right now, each state is different. We don't have any sort of direct reciprocity, or, you know, like AT, we have the Sports Med Act where if you're traveling, you know, you're okay. Um, we don't have anything like that right now. And then with continuing, although people are working on it, and then with continuing education, it is state by state, which is really frustrating. Um, for AT, you know, as long as we have BOC approval, you can take whatever the courses are, or even you know, you have category D, if it's not approved, it might still count. But for PT, it is state by state. So there are courses that might be approved in New Jersey and not New York and vice versa, and I'm licensed in both. <laughs> or you might see a course that that looks fantastic on the other side of the country, you wanna go travel, but it doesn't count. So while I'm, I love the, the education part, it is really frustrating to try to <laughs> balance all of these CEUs. Between so do you, you're getting CEUs uh, for two different professions for the physical therapist part of you and to keep your ATC credential. Yeah, and I have, I just um, reinstated my AT license in New York in January. So I had that also. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, now I have, um, you've been posting a lot on Twitter where you're having several different types of issues depending on the day with your, with your lungs and shortness of breath. Can I ask what's going on in there? What's- oh, sure, yeah. I've actually, I've been trying to, one of the reasons I've been kind of vocal about this is to, you know, kind of get input from people who are treating patients who possibly probably have COVID. And just, and just to also kind of tell people, here's what I'm going through, because all of this is brand new. Everyone's learning as we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, on March 16th, and I remember the date just because it was my last day at my old job, I woke up, felt fine. And then at work, I started to get like body aches. My skin kind of felt like sunburn. Um, I just didn't feel right. Like I was coming down with something. And it already a few days earlier was coming out in New Jersey. Like we are a hot spot. There are tons of cases. I was working in Bergen County, which is the Northeast corner of New Jersey, which is where you know the epicenter is, um, unfortunately. And so that those six, first six days, I was like, man, this is a body aches and stuff. I didn't have a fever. It was just very weird. And I'm like, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It was still pretty early. I couldn't get tested because it was so early. You needed a fever mm-hmm. and a cough. And I had neither. And then I thought I was okay. And so since then, I've been getting on and off. Um, my lungs feel really tight. It reminds me of running when it's really humid outside. And it's just like the air is very thick. Sometimes they hurt. Like it's just pain. And it's different than... Um, like intercostal, like your muscles are sore because you worked out kind of thing. It's very different than that. Or sometimes it burns, like if I just sprinted, but I'm not doing anything. It's getting better. But um, And early on, I would get very winded. I lead a morning stretch every day for like 10 minutes at 7.30. It's not intense at all. And I was getting winded talking, leading like very light stretching. And for just for reference, um, I haven't taught dance in a few years, but when I would teach, I literally taught for five or six hours straight. 
And I would have to talk over the tap dancing and the music and had no problem doing that. Previously, I was running 10 miles up until early March. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's crazy. It's just been kind of like coming and going. It's hard to like predict um, what's going to aggravate me. Sometimes I'm fine walking. Sometimes walking bothers me. So I've been kind of like at my own little case study trying to see what can I do and what can I do because I want to go run. I want to go dance, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if that's going to flare anything up or not. So, so every day is just kind of different? Yes, it okay. is. Now, were you able to get the testing or? No. no. So or when I, in my mind, when I was like acutely symptomatic, like a new thing was going on, I, I didn't qualify for testing. And then after that point, I thought like I wouldn't be positive. Like I was out of that acute stage. Now it's coming out. People are testing positive for 40, 50 days. I actually just tried to go get an antibody test and the information in the news was wrong and you needed a prescription, so I have to go back tomorrow with the prescription. So hopefully, if I have the antibodies, then I will donate plasma. Okay. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you said you're in like a industrial type setting? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how, how has this pandemic affected that, that company you're with? Oh, this or the companies that you've been treating? Yes, yeah, so um, there's a big one that we work with where as soon as that, in New York City, where everything was happening, um, we immediately, they, we were pulled off site, we're not on site anymore, but we've been doing things online. So um, phone consults instead of being in person, or some morning stretching, there's a lot of things we have available online now um, to still try to help people. And with that, it's just waiting for what's going on in New York City, like when it's everything else allowed to open up. So not the same as being able to be there, but still able to offer a lot of services. Yeah, I've been, um, I follow a few physical therapists on Twitter, not, I don't really have any working relationships with any of them but I've been seeing telemedicine come up over and over and over again for six weeks now. Uh, is that something you feel like physical therapists are accepting or they're just kind of tolerating until this cools off? It depends on the person. Um, one PTL specifically mentioned, Ryan Sheldon, who is brilliant, um, he's on Twitter. He has been doing telehealth for a, a while and is very open to it. He used me as like a, not to formally treat me, but as just like an educational tool in the fall, I hurt my shoulder and to demonstrate to other people um, how you would talk through um, doing like an ortho telehealth eval, which is really cool and actually helped me. Um, Some people are a little resistant to it because we're very, we're used to being face-to-face, we're used to being person, we're used to using our hands and now we can't do that. Sometimes it's a safety concern when you're working with an older population or populations that, you know, um, are at a fall risk if you're not, you want to push them, but if you're physically not there and they don't have somebody with them when you do. And then insurance is a problem. Medicare just approved last week, I forget what day, that they will now reimburse for telehealth visits. So all of this time, all of these patients, the older patients who needed PT and could have benefited from it, couldn't get it. There's a lot of rules in Medicare. So just in a nutshell, we weren't allowed to do it. So we're also very limited by insurance if somebody's not able to pay out of pocket. Okay. Uh, in the athletic training world, there have been numerous athletic trainers that were either laid off or furloughed. Is that also a problem in the PT world? Yeah, I've been seeing that a lot. Thankfully, I'm not. Um, my job, we're not in that boat right now. Okay. But that's happening with a lot of people. If, if clinics just aren't able to, to keep affording them, or depending on where you are, clinics just had to close. It's just mm-hmm. a safety concern. If you have enough PPE, I think geographically, like Northern New Jersey, New York City is facing very different problems than the rest of the country. Yeah, that's happening a lot. Okay. Is, there, is there anything, any topics uh, that, that you want to go into or anything on your mind you've seen lately on Twitter or in work? Yeah. Well, one thing I bring up, as I just said, PPE um, is 
I, I don't know if you previously, something I bring up a lot with an AT is following just like standard precautions, why mm -hmm. it's really important. So I'm hoping this kind of, as awful as this pandemic is, is like a good reminder to us, the ATs and anybody in healthcare, why it's so important to follow basic standard precautions and then whatever else we need to go on with, if it's specific to COVID or like any kind of illness. Within PT, you know, I'm outpatient, but when I was a student, I had two inpatient internships and there are different types of precautions if somebody has like MRSA or something like that, or if they're on drop the precautions, you need a gown, glove, mask, and it's so specific. Um, that I hope we all kind of like remember this once we like move back into working with sports again. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be real interesting when um, the states are starting to open up and we're doing more things and we want to return to normal. But we're, we're what is normal? Right. Yeah, and I think for me at least in the region that I'm in, because I and I try to pay attention on Twitter, Facebook, like what people are saying in other parts of the country because it's so different. I see people like, oh, we need to get back. We're fine. Like, it's a different world over here. And things can spread easily. I just saw a headline um, earlier today about how it looks like things started in New York City. And then from travel from the city, you know, things are kind of spreading everywhere else, which makes sense where I am. So when people live in New York, they commute to work in New York, um, that for the places that are doing relatively okay, it, it's scary how quickly things can change. I've been following the data every day in New Jersey, and things can change very, very quickly. I have no answers. Yeah, no, no one has any answers. It's just something, it's so important to be aware of. You can go from zero cases to many cases. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm concerned about because um, I have friends and family and colleagues on, on both sides of the spectrum. Uh, we need to be more conservative and we're opening up too soon. Hey man, just open it up. And what, what my ultimate fear is, is that we do open up and what, what we normally see for cases just goes through the freaking roof. Deaths go through the roof and they say, all right, we're locking down. And the next thing you know, it's January, February, March, 2021, and we're in this lockdown. It's like, what did we do to ourselves? Yeah, I never anticipated this. Um, and I read the date, but early March, New Rochelle in New York, which is like just outside of New York City, basically, that's where that was the first hot spot. Mm -hmm. And I remember the news, I'm like, they closed New Rochelle? How do you close it? Like, how do you do this? Mm -hmm. And then, with you know, within a couple of weeks, as everything's closed, um, and in, I think in my mind, I thought maybe it'd be a couple of weeks or, you know, when you see like measles outbreaks and mumps and things like that, mm -hmm. it was very different. I think New Jersey just extended the state of emergency another 30 days. New York City's kind of on the same path too. They have a, there's a little consortium going out to New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, all the, like the states in this region are all trying to stay on the same page. So it's not that, say we stay closed, but Connecticut opens. Well, that's not going to help anybody. Yeah. All the governors are coming together to work together, which is really nice. Yeah. I, uh, every time I see a Governor uh, Cuomo like press conference or where he's talking, it's just like I, I'm I like I didn't know who he was six weeks ago, but I like I like this guy when he talks and and it's not not making things like super political and, and I'm right and you're wrong or, or vice versa. He's like, hey, we need to take care of the people, and if we mess this up, we're gonna lose a lot of lives. And uh, he comes off to me as being genuine, and like I like him. He's got a nice he's little a, accent too. He is a New Yorker. When he talks, I hear my grandma, who's from the Bronx. He's from Queens, but she was from the Bronx. But it's a very tell it like it is. You're not being rude, but just being honest, putting the facts out there, not sugarcoating things. But at the same time, I love that he always says that, that you know, New Yorkers have that reputation for being tough, but at the same time, very loving, caring, not selfish people too, which he, I think, exudes all the time. I absolutely love him. I watch his press conference just about every day. What, what's what's your dog's name? That's Diesel. Hey Diesel. 
He is a handful. Oh, this is fun. This is fun to share with athletic trainers. He tore both ACLs in his back legs. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is neat. This is actually interesting. Um, he, it was four years ago. He tore one partially. He said it's going to fully go. It was just time. And the surgery they do is called a transtibial plateau le leveling osteotomy, TPLO. So their tibial plateaus are slanted. I don't know much about that, but they're slanted. So they literally break it. Yeah. And then to change the angle that it's at so you don't get that shearing. Mm -hmm. And then they bleed it all back together. And then a few months after when he was recovering, he tore the other one. Because that happens. If you tear one, you're going to tear the other. Yeah, that, that, that would sound like a, a terrible surgery to get, um, to go in there and act, like break and modify that bone. Uh, it's insane. So I had, uh, my athletic director is attempting to host uh, a meeting like once a week or once every couple of weeks with the coaches and the knowledge they shared with me today in the zoom meeting is that the schools are closed until June 30th, but starting July 1st, the facilities are open and you can practice and you can do whatever you want. So you posted that July 1st. Yeah. So it's like, I think that will give sports enough time. Okay. If everything goes well and our numbers don't go through the roof, Starting July 1st, I believe, would give our kids enough time to get back into shape because they're going to be far more out of shape and which causes way more health hazards when the season starts. Yeah. Um, but I'm still sketchy that we're going to be like reopening on time. Yeah. I've kind of early on have learned whenever they give dates, at least where I am, it's probably going to change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're doing their best, you know, based on like where we're at. I, saw, I just, can't remember what seat it was in, but I just saw something that there was going to be some sort of little league or some youth baseball tournament this weekend. Yeah, it's, uh, I think Stephen, Stephen Moss and, and Mike Hoppers, I think they said it was either St. Louis or somewhere in Texas. Yes, yeah. And I saw a pediatric ortho had posted it. It's like a USSAA or USAAA or something, a uh, little league. It's like, it's ridiculous. Pediatric soapbox um, for kids. I mean, maybe they were practicing at home. Who knows? But like to take kids who have not been doing organized sports now for however long, and throw them in, especially knowing baseball, where if you're the pitcher, they're going to make you pitch constantly, not following the you know what we do with adults with rest. Oh, that's a mess. <laughs> yeah, it, it, can, it can get very like our injury rates can absolutely uh, be terrible in the next you know six to nine months. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really going to care until it it's too late. That's the frustrating thing. And I'm one of the reasons I missed the research that I was doing. And it was so unique with, at, at least at the time, like no one studied boot camp injuries in depth. Um, you know, the prevention part of things and looking at what can we get at ahead of time. So when I was starting that project, I wasn't necessarily thinking prevention because the short term kids are there for a week or two weeks, you know, it's, it's so different. But we were able to like kind of, I would pick up on trends on my own, just going through all the documentation. And there was, um, my study wasn't long enough, it was only two years. So that's not, in epidemiology, that's not enough. But I had come across some studies called the healthy camp study, just general overnight summer camps. And in their first pilot year, they found um, just from the, you know, the first data that they cut down on kitchen injuries by teaching people how to use knives properly, like when they're cooking. They cut down on all the injuries for kids by saying you can't wear sandals or flip-flops. You have to be in sneakers. And they cut down on illnesses by checking temperatures when they signed in. Like such simple, simple things, but that they made a huge difference in prevention. And in sports, unfortunately, you know, we don't see that a lot. Everyone wants to go, 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 go. And then things hit the fan and then we react. Um, so being on the 
this is like a big component of my job now being on the prevention end and trying to get ahead of everything. It's, I think we all know it's important, but it's so hard to convince other people that if you do a little more, if you put in more effort up front, you put in a little more money up front, it's actually going to save you all in the long run. And that, that's an area where I tend to get very frustrated with the athletic training uh, profession as a whole, because I think prevention uh, that could easily be our bread and our butter. And we, we, um, you know, we're in the schools and we're in different settings and just like, who better than us to do that? And we, we're in all those locations. But I feel like a lot of people just kind of brush it off. And, you know, that takes too much time. And that's too much effort. And then, you know, I'm going to make the coaches mad if I take 10 minutes of time before practice. And it's just like, ah, we could prevent so many things instead of just handling everything. You know, we're already short-staffed and, you know, under-resourced and under-budget. And it's like, that drives me through the roof. Me too. One of the neat things now with my job, this is really cool, um, and this is on Twitter, you can look it up, is the PT health study that we are doing. And it's using, for us specifically, garments, so using a wearable. And they already have this platform that they've been using for a couple years with their strength and conditioning clients. Um, but to predict illness, if you can look at different trends going on with your wearable data, um, can you predict illnesses before they actually happen? And we actually saw that with one of our um, PTs before he started to have symptoms, you could see some trends happening, sorry, Roxy's right away, with his data. So that's a really neat thing to work at the PT mm -hmm. Health Study. And I know other people are doing that too, using some wearables, but that's an option for prevention. Like maybe you have to pay, you know, $100 or whatever for, to wear a device. But if that, if we can catch you getting sick before you feel sick and pull back, say just pull back on your training, you're having an off day. Or with COVID, if we can pick up on this and keep you from going to work, before you spread it, like that's huge. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think one of the reasons it's hard as we hear more in AT about like value is it's hard to put dollar amounts on prevention sometimes. You know, you can guess, you know, if, if you had gotten that MRI or if you had gotten that surgery, I personally am not a fan of the hypothetical insurance rates because that's not actually how life works for those of us who do build. Um, but it's, it's a hard thing to quantify to people. So if you're going to your AD or someone to say, you know, let's do this, they they have a budget, you know, and they want to stay within it. So it's hard to kind of, it's a hard sell sometimes. Yeah. No, I, I'm all about the AT value, but I do, um, I do rub a lot of people the wrong way because when they, when they say like, Hey, I did a thousand rehab treatments. And if I were to bill that, that's $50,000. I'm like, that's, that's fake money. Yes. At, the, at the end of the day, you didn't make any money for your school and you didn't save any money for your school. You might've saved that kid, that family money that you did like rehab in house compared to going to PT or seeing an orthopedic. And, but, um, it's yeah. misleading. Um, just for like a quick little thing. So with, for real, when you bill insurance, um, with private insurances, I mean, there's going to be limitations. It could be a visit amount as a PT. I can say that it could be a visit amount per year. It could be a dollar cap. There could be every 10 visits, whatever. There's an authorization that's required. There is an insurance company that, actually, I don't know what happened recently because COVID took over the news, but they were in a RICO case because they, I know from personal experience, every fifth claim they were denying, not based on anything clinical, just every fifth one they were denying and hopefully no one fights it back and then they get to keep their money. Um, and then if you look at CMS, I only know Medicare. I haven't um, worked with patients with Medicaid to understand that billing, but with Medicare, there are so many rules. Um, just for a couple, you have to do a full reevaluation every ten day, every ten visits or thirty days, whichever is first, has to be signed by the doctor for it to count. Doesn't matter if you get a new script. Reeval plan of care has to be signed by the physician, and if you don't have that and you get audited, they need their money back. 
and there it is not endless. We've had, there's so many sort of PTs where a patient had a stroke and can't get up and down the stairs to get in and out of their home, denied. <laughs> you know, so there are many, many rules. So you can pretend, oh, I did this many rehabs, but that doesn't mean they'd actually get paid out. There are many, many limitations. No, I, I, I perfectly understand because I, in the mornings, I work in the concussion clinic under a physician and all we see are concussions and he's a specialist and uh, insurances and, and worker compensation. They will do everything they can to deny everything on everyone and all the treatment, you know, vestibular therapies, medicines, uh, any kind of, you know, referral to someone else or a neurologist. It's just deny, deny, deny. We need to save money. And you're trying to do those prior authorizations and call them and it just doesn't matter. It is so frustrating. And I see, you know, on the AT side for people who want to be able to bill and get reimbursed, like where it's like, oh, money. But on the other side, like you don't understand how much work that is to get denials. <laughs> it is, it's for the bigger people I've seen who are very impaired from accidents or, you know, whatever happened. And then I'm like, and you think they're going to cover a kid who is otherwise fine and just has some pain playing a sport? Mm -hmm. no, no, which is unfortunate. It's very sad that that's where we are. And that's why I've seen many um, outpatient PTs go to cash only because they can treat as whatever that patient needs and not have those insurance limitations. The downside is then you're only seeing people who can afford it. As a solo uh, high school athletic trainer, you know, if, if the day came and they're like, hey, uh, you're going to have to document all this stuff because you're going to be putting out billing, be like, it's just not, in no world can I see that being feasible unless like I saw five kids a day and I didn't do any medical coverage. It was just like in my office, on my laptop all day long, helping out like Jimmy and then doing all, because that takes hours. Yes, I would work. So my old job, I treated Monday, Wednesday, Friday, eight to eight. I lunched for an hour, but I was doing notes during lunch. That didn't count. And then, then I would have to actually do all my notes. If I had an e each eval would take me about an hour, maybe hour and a half. Mm -hmm. If it was a more complex person, older person, a lot of stuff going on. Um, you know, if authorizations had to go out, that's even more time. <sighs> Re-evals, you're like, oh no, now I, and I have five re-evals, which are for me, like half an hour each. And then plus the daily notes, mm -hmm. it is a lot. And then you're also, um, faxing because we still use faxes faxing to physicians if you need things to get signed for insurance and insurance needs objective measures they don't need that kid feels better they need numbers they need some standard objective valid tools <laughs> there are a lot of things that we have for that um mm -hmm. like medicare if that's not there you're gonna get audited and you're gonna get you're gonna owe them a lot of money it's it's not fun <laughs> well, i i agree 100 it, it's uh far more work than people think and you have to be extremely thorough Yes. And um, like, are, are there places that could do it? Absolutely. But the majority, I don't even think it would be possible. Yeah, it's, it's very time consuming. And like when I did my sport camp research, which had no sort of, right. you know, there you anything 10 about? minutes. Yeah. With insurance, with sport camps, when there's no, we're not reimbursing stuff. Um, I, I made it easy. It was like a one page on paper, soap note, lots of check boxes to make it quick. But I knew there was a lot of volume because of sport camps, um, you know, and that the AT said was hard. And like, you clinically need to be documenting things because there were insurance claims later, um, you know, and from my end, we need to research, but it's, that's hard when the, when you have that large of a volume, mm -hmm. it is very difficult. <laughs> and well, it's, it would be up at two in the morning. Yeah. And then you'd be making like athletic trainers get super mad that, um, like if, if you're paid for 40, you need to work 40. And under that model, uh, you'd be working 40 and then working 30 at home. 
Oh yeah. I like for me as a PT, I never even would time my full hours documenting because it would drive, I'm salary, you know, it would frustrate me if I actually knew how many hours I was doing it. Yeah. Well, we have uh, eight minutes. Is there anything you want to talk about? Or you think we talked about a lot of stuff in uh 25 ish minutes. One of the, just uh, quick, one of the things I like that you bring up on Twitter, at least recently, um, is on top of, you know, documentation, making sure you have your EAPs and policies and procedures and things in place. Um, that is so important for a million reasons that I could talk about for hours. But sometimes I see people post questions on Facebook or Twitter. I'm like, do you not have that in a thing already? That should be like, oh, let me pull out my p, &P manual or it's right there. Um, and I know it's easy to say, oh, we're too busy, but especially in an emergency or if mm -hmm. I hate example Jordan McNair because it's such an awful case but like they went back to those EAPs and like you have it documented you should have done this this and this why didn't you and it would be so much worse to say why don't you even have it in the first place you know we need to be prepared and have things ready to go and we we, we know what to do in an emergency not kind of figuring it out on the fly yeah and, and when I was in school which, which was only a couple years ago um they made it sound like we were so far past EAPs, like everybody had them, everybody practiced them, all the coaches knew. And then when I got to my, my job here at East Chicago, uh, they had an athletic trainer two years before me. And then the athletic trainer before that was here for like 10 years. And I was like, yeah, okay, uh, do we have an emergency action plan? And they're like, what's that? I'm like, do we have written policies and procedures? They're like, what's that? Yeah. And I was like, um, do you guys get consent for treatment because I'm a medical provider and these are minors? And they're like, we haven't heard of any of this. I was like, okay, well, we need to get this stuff done. And what makes me frustrated is that there's athletic trainers that have had the last six to eight weeks off due yes. to COVID. And uh, a lot, there's a lot of schools out there without policies and procedures and without emergency action plans. And I'm, I bet you a lot of those schools did not take the time to, to write something up. You're so needed. I think you sound like you're in the same boat as me. I went, so for JMU, which I rave about often, I loved my education. They were so on top of everything documentation. Like Jeff Conan would have had your head on a stick if you did not have all these things in place. Um, and I didn't know other places weren't like that. So I had a friend a few years after who was a GA somewhere else, went to JMU traveling with the team. And she said, oh my God, they had the EAPs taped to the water coolers. I'm like, well, yeah. So you as a traveling person have the information right there. She was so blown away that this actually does exist in other places. <laughs> I mean, that's how I was trained. So I, yeah, I assumed other places were like that. And it was a rude awakening to learn what it's like in other places. Yeah. And I, I also get frustrated when, um, so like I was furloughed and uh, people are like, Hey, if you're not getting paid, you don't be working. You're devaluing the profession. But if I didn't have an EAP and I didn't have a policy procedure manual, I would have knocked that out. And I would have done edits and I would have sent it to the AD and the fitness staff and the coaches. And like, I would work for free because without that stuff, you're going to get kids killed. Literally killed. Yes. Yeah. We've unfortunately, you know, we've seen that with college football time and time again, unfortunately. Um, there's other cases where that's happened. Yes. And I think we forget that like literally life or death with certain things like heat stroke um, when they're not mm -hmm. recognized, you need to be ready. Yeah. And I, I'll put out there, if anybody needs help going over like an EAP or PMP or whatever, contact me on Twitter. I'm more than happy to help. Um, documentation kind of things. That is one of my areas. Yeah. yeah and me too. Like I, I was challenged as soon as this um, COVID thing started Friday, March 16th. That's when a lot of the schools closed in Indiana. I, and I just started putting out there like, Hey, friendly competition. I want your EAP. I want your PMP. I'm going to rate it against mine. I'm going to win. I'm going to beat you. But I was just kind of joking about it. So snarky. And, uh, 
I don't know, just people, they they don't want to feel embarrassed or like feel like it's less than adequate and they don't want to send it to you. And it's like, I can see that. You know. But it's so like, I, um, really quick, I had covered years ago an event, this weird BMX event, I don't, my husband's a BMXer, um, in New York City, which I was familiar with because I had been working in New York City for four years. And a company that I won't name had sent an AT student there, not even an AT. And I'm like, and I knew it. So I'm like, so what hospital are you sending them to? She's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, you probably should know that. You need to know, especially in New York City, you know, know what's there. Have a plan. And it's not just on her because she had a boss who was an AT. Um, but stuff like that, like, should never happen. You need to be ready and know what's going on. You need to be able to communicate not just with the athlete, but with the family so they know where to go. Have a, here, you're traveling. Here are the instructions to the hospital so you know where to go because you're not familiar with this area. You know, all of that needs to be ready at all times. Yeah, well, I appreciate you taking time out of your day. What's today? Thursday? Yeah, taking time out of your Thursday. Thanks uh, for having me. To come on and do this. And I, I you know, I, I would love to have you on in the future. Um, I, I feel like I feel like we get along great. I, I really enjoy talking to you. Likewise. You know, yeah. So, um, thanks for the time and have a great day. And I'll talk to you in the future. And see you later, Diesel. <laughs> oh, and Roxy. Oh, well, Roxy. Wait, is that Roxy? Roxy. I look like Diesel. Oh, man. All right. Have a good one. You too. Thank you. <laughs>